Let's try that again. Good morning. Happy Father's Day. Trying to explain to my kids, they, they were, they've been so sweet today and this weekend, making me little crafts and just telling me that they love me and Happy Father's Day and stuff. Trying to explain to them, you guys don't understand, the gift is you. Isn't that crazy? Right? Yeah, we appreciate the stuff. That's nice. But the gift is you, kids. So, Happy Father's Day. We're so glad that you're with us at South City. Thanks for coming and being a part of our service today and worshiping with us. My name is Drew Klein. I'm one of the pastors here. And something you may not know about me, I'm sure I seem much younger than I am, uh, but uh, you may not know that I'm actually a child of the 80s. I'm a child of the 70s and the 80s. Okay, I'm getting a little bit of feedback here, which is good. It was clearly the best time to grow up, right? Uh, especially musically, but I don't know about you, but we didn't have this highfalutin TV mess with 300 channels and nothing to watch. You know what I mean? We didn't have that sort of thing going. We had three channels, and we liked it. And it went off at midnight, remember, and they laid the Star Spangled Banner. And you knew, okay, I can go to sleep now. Uh, it was good, and there were all these shows on. And as a kid, I used to, I loved certain shows that, that, that came on. And I was really drawn to these certain shows that had like... Um, two characters together. They were the heroes together. And I thought it'd be kind of fun for us to play a little game, see if, how many real true children of the 70s and 80s we have with us. So you tell me the name of the show when I tell you some of the characters here, all right? Ponch and John. Ooh, nice. That was one of my favorites, California Highway Patrol, right? That was just awesome. Loved it. I loved it so much. All right. Uh, this will be an easy one. Starsky and Hutch. Oh, good. Good. That's good. Can't get a thing past you. Bo and Luke Duke. Oh, come on. I mean, does it get any better than that? It, it does. It was actually an awful show. But uh, again, we only have three channels. So uh, what are you going to do? Uh, Andy and Barney. Andy Griffith Show. I mean, wonderful. For the ladies, Cagney and Lacey. Remember that one? Never watched it, but that was for the ladies there. Uh, Magnum P.I. and Higgins, that was great. The Lone Ranger and Tonto, these teams were so awesome. This is for Julian, Batman and Robin. Batman. Bat, I mean, and I'm sure he could give you a list of about 40 other great dynamic duos that came together. I used to like the Wonder Twins. You may remember the Wonder Twin? Wonder Twin powers activate. That whole... Anyway, there's something powerful about a dynamic duo. There's something powerful and, and uh, it's just, it's two or better than one. It's real simple. And so I think what we've been seeing in our study in the book of Acts is that this dynamic duo we're talking about is Paul and Barnabas. They are, they are powerful together. They've lost John Mark. He, when they got to Perga, they, he said, I'm out, guys. I'm going back to Jerusalem. But that didn't stop them. They, they continued on. We've talked about uh, some of the difficulty that they've already faced. They went from... Uh, Paphos, which is at the west coast of Cyprus, north to uh, Perga, in which is modern-day Turkey, 165-mile journey just for that boat ride there. And then they decided to go another 100 miles up into the mountains to 3,600 uh, feet above sea level to Antioch, Pisidia, which was awesome because God did an amazing work. Many Jews came to know the Lord. Many Greeks came to know the Lord. Gentiles came to know the Lord. And then they run out of town, Right? And I love the very last verse from last week's message is that they had joy and they were full of the Holy Spirit. 
Because when you're in the center of the will of God, you will have a joy that you cannot explain. Regardless of difficulty, regardless of trouble, regardless of opposition, there will be a joy in your soul. And the spirit of the living God will fill your life. And we see that in Paul and Barnabas. Well, now after they've been run out of town, they make another little short journey here on foot, right? Southeast to a town called Iconium. It's only 90 miles southeast. These guys are putting in some mileage, aren't they? So let's get into our text. Acts 14, verse 1 through 7. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Laconia, and onto the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now, I don't, I don't know what it was about this text, but when I read that very first line, I just had an image in my mind, right? This is probably where all the 80s shows started here. Now at Iconium, they entered together. I don't, I don't know if you feel that. But, and I, I'm, again, I'm probably, I'm, they're not like entering like, you know, breaking in the doors of the Senate. They're, they're not that, but, well, in my mind, they were for a minute. Um, but what, what's cool about this is they're shoulder to shoulder. They are together. They are one in mission. They enter together. The first note on your card this morning, if you're following along, is that they're united in mission and message. They're one. They've been through some junk. I mean, they have walked through some difficulty, hadn't they? They have traveled some serious mileage. And I know there maybe even have been some power struggles. But in this moment, in this text, they enter together. And I think there's something powerful about this. I want to remind you that the idea of Paul and Barnabas being together is not theirs. It was the Holy Spirit's. Remember that from Acts 13? The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I have for them. This was God's idea that they be together, not theirs. This is his idea, right? And one thing is clear about them, their team. Not unlike these other dynamic duos I've mentioned this morning. They're a team. Through thick and thin, preaching or persecution, they're going to be together. They're going to do this together. They continued on mission regardless of the difficulty. John left, and they stayed. Don't you know that was a tough moment? John left, and they're like, I mean, should we, should we call it quits? This is hard. This is going to be difficult. What should we do? This is, I mean, we're facing the opposition. This is, I know, 100 miles up this mountain range with bandits. What are we, uh they, they press on. They're now 575 miles away from Antioch in Syria, which is where they started. 575 miles from, from where they have been called their home in Antioch. But they weren't stopping now. They weren't about to stop regardless of physical illness. We know that Paul faced a, a physical illness probably with his eyes, some type of malaria. We know that they faced relational difficulties, losing John Mark. 
They faced physical situations in all this travel, and yet they're doing it together. Two are better than one. That's what I'm trying to say. We talked about this in our marriage series when we mentioned that in Genesis chapter 2, verse 10, God says, it's not good for man to be alone, right? Just the very first idea that, no, we, we need to do something together with other people. In fact, Ecclesiastes 4, 9 says this, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. It's just simple. Two are better than one. Even in Jewish tradition, uh, for, for thousands of years, Jewish tradition would have been that if you wanted to bring an accusation against someone, whether that be a murder, a serious as murder, or a lie, or, or any other type of accusation, you couldn't do it as one person. It had to come as two or more. There was something of, of trust in, in numbers. Jesus himself, when he trained the disciples, he, he trained them one-on-one, not only just living with them, but training them for mission. You might remember Matthew 10, he sends them out, and he sends them out how? Two by two. There's a power in, in, in sending them together. Mark 6, 7 says, he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over unclean spirits. Or Luke 10, 1, that says, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Listen, there's a strength, there's a power that two people have. It demands more attention. It gives accountability to the mission. We're going to stay on this. I don't feel like it. You got to feel like it. Come on, grab my arm. We're going together. We need each other. We're doing this. Okay. Right? You ever had that kind of person to help you go to the gym? You're just like, uh uh-uh, no. And they're like, get your tail up and meet me, you know. And you're like, ugh, and you get there, right? That's the power of accountability. We're better together. We protect one another. Jesus even talks about uh, even in relational dynamics. And I love this this verse and I love mentioning this to you because we're a family and in families we have relationships and in relationships you're going to have dysfunction, sometimes function, but also dysfunction. And we want to say, hey, let's operate by Matthew 18. And Jesus says in Matthew 18, if, if you've got a problem with a brother, go speak to that brother. But if he doesn't listen, he says in Matthew 18, 16, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Again, kind of following the Jewish tradition. See, there's, there's more likely that there's truth in two or three witnesses. There's more trust when you bring more people. Jesus even says, when we pray, we're more effective together. Matthew 18, 19, he says, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. It's simple. Two are better than one. And the thing I want us to see this morning is that we need a mission partner. Every one of us needs a mission partner. Now, if you're married today, I hope that your mission partner, one of your mission partners is your spouse. I know that I have a mission partner in my wife. She, is, uh, she has been my faithful mission partner 
for 25 years. In fact, this Tuesday is going to be our 25th anniversary. And so... <laughs> And let me say, that's not an easy job for her, okay? You know what I'm saying? She's had to put up with me for a long, long time. I just want to say this to you, love. I can't, I can't put into words what you mean to me or how wonderful you are. And thank you for serving with me as my mission partner. Um, anyway, yeah. 25, that's a pretty big deal, huh? Praise God. For his faithfulness. Hopefully your marriage partner is your partner on mission. But the question is this. Is your marriage on mission? Like when you think about your marriage, do you go, yeah, we have a mission. Because every believer in Jesus has a mission to make Jesus known. And if you have a mission partner, that ought to be part of your conversation. It ought to be part of your reality. You know that Lori had a, a situation, an appendix kind of thing happened recently. And she's still even kind of weak this morning, had to have surgery and stuff. Well, I was out of town. I get a call from her. She says, our next door neighbor is going to take us in. Well, that's our Indian next door neighbor. And we've been praying for them, for their salvation for years. And so, yes, I'm thinking about my wife. But in my heart, I'm going, oh, I thought about what kind of conversation might happen on the way to the hospital, you know. Uh, But anyway, my mind went to part of our mission. I was concerned about my wife, but I was also thinking about, God, will you even use this in the mission that we have as a, as a marriage? Does your marriage have a mission? Maybe you're not married today. Maybe you're single. Guess what? You need a mission partner. You need a friend who you can pray with, who can hold you accountable to the things that matter in mission. You need somebody that you can say, hey, let's, let's witness together. Let's do a mission trip together. Hold each other accountable. Let's, we need each other. Because guess what? We get kind of lazy if not. If we don't have that person pushing us and challenging us, it's easy just to settle down on the couch, isn't it? Listen, if you're part of a city group, I think that's a perfect opportunity to be missional as a group. As a group, you can connect together and go, guys, I'm praying for, pray for this person in my office, pray for my next door neighbor, pray for my, whatever the case may be. But we can be missional together, and the reality is we're better together. We need each other. When we're united to the commitment of mission, as we see Paul and Barnabas entering the synagogue together. When we're united together on the mission of Jesus with a message that's united, God saves people. It's just that simple. Look what it says here in, in our text. It says, they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Now listen, I believe that God had to draw those people who believed. And the Holy Spirit was working in that place. But there's something about how they spoke that was compelling. They were united, not only in the mission to make Jesus known, but in the way that they spoke to the people. The way they connected to those folks in some way caused the Lord to save many of these Jews and Greeks. Here's the second thing I want you to see on your card. The gospel unites and divides. Have you noticed that? There's a polarizing element to the gospel of Jesus. When you come to know him, Hopefully you get surrounded by people who love you and want to love you and want to walk life with you. It's called the church. And when the church is functioning the way it's supposed to, there's nothing more beautiful in all the world. You get connected. You get surrounded. You get uh, fed into. You get invested in. You get loved, helped. It's beautiful. But you may have also noticed when you follow Jesus, there's some people who go, I'm done with you. Right? I'm done with you. Maybe your family that says, no, mm -mm, we don't do that. 
They may be friends that go, sorry, if you're going to do that, if you're going to make that choice. I'll never forget my high school friend when I told him I wasn't going drinking anymore. He goes, oh, you'll be back next weekend drunk with me. And I said, not this time. And it was kind of like a, okay, whatever. There, there was an opposition to the movement of Jesus in our lives. It unites and it divides. You know, it says something in our, in our text. It says both Jews and Greeks believed. In other words, they were both represented in the synagogue. Jews were there naturally in the synagogue, but there were also Greeks that were trying to learn. But listen, though they were together, they weren't really together. In other words, the Jewish religion was a Jewish religion. So if you're a Gentile, you might, they might allow you to come in and listen, but it's always going to be the Jewish religion. You're always going to be an outsider. You're always going to have to be from the outside looking in, trying to see what, what it is that they're doing. But I want you to know the gospel of Jesus is not that way. The gospel of Jesus brings us together. There is true diversity in the gospel. In fact, in just a few months from this moment, Paul's going to write a letter to, to the churches and to the people that are coming to know Jesus. He's going to write this letter to the Galatians. Galatia is not a town. It's an area where all these cities, right? Lystra and Derby and Iconium and Antioch, they, they make up this whole area. And so Paul's going to write this letter, the book of Galatians, and he's going to say this in chapter 3, verse 28. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Regardless of race, regardless of social status, regardless of gender, regardless of financial position, we are one. That's what the gospel does. It brings us together. You know, the thing I noticed is that unity, when there's real unity, it's because there's real humility. When there's real unity, it's because there's real humility. In other words, there's a saying that says that at the foot of the cross, the ground is what? Level, right? It means we all have to come to this place of acknowledging. No matter who we are, where we're from, or what we've done, or what we have, it doesn't matter. At the foot of the cross, we, all, we have to all humble ourselves and say, we're all sinners in need of this grace. We are all sinners in need of Jesus' sacrifice for our lives. There's a, a humble nature that we have to come to, to be unified together. Whereas division is usually founded in lies and arrogance. Right? When there's division, it's because somebody's saying, you know what? I think I'm better than some of these people. I'm not going to do church with them. Well, that's a lie. It's not true. But some people believe it. Or maybe you've been told a lie all your life and you've been raised with a lie. Maybe of racism, for instance. We're not born with a tendency for racism. It's something that's learned. And you might be believing that lie. You might have believed that lie your whole life. But that is a lie of the devil. The gospel brings us together. It unites us. May we be united. And what I think is interesting in, in this is when we see Paul and Barnabas making their argument, we see some pe people disagree, but they don't jump up to fight. They don't push back and say, no, 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 I don't, I don't agree with this. Notice what they do. Notice what their fight is, would you? It says in verse 2, it says, they stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Isn't that interesting? They, they, didn't, they didn't push back immediately. They didn't, they didn't cause some scene. Instead, that was very subversive, wasn't it? It was very subversive. It was very divisive. They, they wanted to, to cause a problem, but they wanted to do it in a way that, that affected the minds. It says they poisoned 
the minds of the brothers and the Gentiles. You know that's exactly what Satan did in the garden? Satan didn't jump up and fight God and say, no, they ought to be able to eat. No, that's not what they did. Adam and Eve knew that God had said, don't eat of this tree. And what did Satan do? Are you sure he said that? Did he really say that? He poisoned their minds. They were on the fence. They were trying to make sense of something. He poisoned their minds. He was subversive. And ultimately, they sinned. You know, I'm, I'm, convic- I'm convicted and I'm convinced that in our culture today, there's so many people that we see there's this division of people who know the Lord, believe his word to be true, inspired, infallible. And then there's these people who don't believe his word is infallible. And they're changing some things. And they're making the Bible want, try and fit their way of life. And I'm telling you, they're poisoning the minds of people on the fence. This is an age-old problem from the garden. We have to believe the word of God is what it is, what God has said it is. But the enemy is still poisoning minds. Here's the third thing. They're in it for the long haul. So they start this subversive action. They start poisoning the minds of the brothers. And the verse literally says, the next verse literally says, so, in other words, in response to this action against their ministry, they remained for a long time. Paul and Barnabas, this was going to take longer. They're going to have to do more now. Because there's poisoning, because there's dissension, because there's these words and lies going on about what they're saying, they've got to take more time now. But that's exactly what they do. In fact, I think they expected it. They expected that this was, this was going to be part of the persecution. At least that's what Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 10. It says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Paul and Barnabas would have expected this. So they knew, yeah, if if our ministry is going to have depth, if we're going to actually see roots take place in the ministry that we're we're preaching and teaching, we're going to have to stay and work this out. See, it wasn't just as easy as let's just preach a few messages and move on. No, they had to stand up. They had to have strength in what they were doing. You know, as I thought about this, I couldn't help but think about some of our situation in our church. And, and over the last couple of years, you know, we've had people not really see our vision, not get it, and either leave us or say things against us, right? And I, I just started thinking about how it's easy to have church wounds. Have you ever had a church wound? Maybe it's not a wound from the church, but maybe it's a wound from the people of the church, uh, you know, I've told this before. My greatest wound in my life was a wound from people in church. To this day, it affects me. It, it was my, it's my greatest wound. But I just, as I thought about this, and I thought about how people try and poison minds and, 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 and do this subversive action, I, I just wanted to say this to you. Don't allow people's mistakes, people's mistakes, to change what you know to be true about God. I'm going to say that again. Don't allow people's mistakes to change what you know to be true about God. Does God want you to be in a family, in a church? Of course he does. 
It's clear in his word. But how many people do you know have gotten offended, gotten hurt, and they just left the church? They let people's mistakes somehow change what they knew to be true of God. Their lies, their discouragement, their disloyalty, it all reflects their character, not God's. Right? It's the person who's hurt you. That's not the Lord. And the saddest thing is people end up leaving the church and that ends up hurting them more than the people that hurt them in the first place. How many friends I know that have pulled away from the church and I'm watching their lives just kind of go down the gutter because they don't have that accountability. They don't have that direction. They're not stirring one another up to love and good works as it says in Hebrews. This is what happens. Friends, don't allow people's mistakes. They're just people. To change what you know to be true of God. You know, when that wound happened in, in our lives, in the church in, in uh, Tennessee, I was devastated. It happened on a Tuesday. But guess where I was on Sunday? I was in church. It would have been so easy to go, God, I just can't, I'm just going to sleep in. I mean, I put in my time. I'd served over 20 years in the church at that point, right? I put in my time. I'm just going to sleep in and take this one off. But I didn't because I felt like I needed to say something to my kids and to my family. That is, God wants us in his house with his people, and that's where we'll be. Despite of what's happened on Tuesday, this is where we'll be on Sunday. And guess what happened? God spoke directly to our hearts, didn't he, that day? He's, he spoke like he was speaking to us this beautiful message of healing. We would have missed it if we said, no, it's about us, and we're just going to pull back. Can I encourage you to keep your eyes on the prize as believers in Jesus? The prize of deepening your relationship with him, and it will only happen together. It'll only happen in his church. It'll only happen in his family. You know, several years ago, uh, my sister and I, who's here today, we decided to run a half marathon together. True story. And uh, so we were training, we were doing all our stuff, and we got on the race. She had never run more than three miles before. And here we're about to attempt 13.1. And yes, that point one counts. Right? After 13, it's a long ways for that point one. So we start running. And at three miles, Donna starts bawling her eyes. She's running and she's bawling. I'm like, are you okay? She said, yes, I'm just so happy. She's just like, I made it three miles. And we were, and there was actually a gospel choir singing and they were really encouraging and we kept running. And she's tenacious, by the way. She, I mean, she had her eye on the prize, which was to finish that race. We get to about mile 10, and her body starts feeling some real struggle. She wasn't used to running this much. If you know about runner's injuries in marathons or something, you probably, I'm not going to you know, tell you the details, but her feet started hurting really bad, her, her toenails, her body was aching. Mine was too. And she was hurting really bad. She grabbed my arm at one point. And I said, hey, we can stop. We don't have to, we, we can stop. This is, I'm, we're together, that's all that matters. But she's one of the strongest ladies I've ever met in my entire life. And she would not let pain and difficulty and that circumstance stop her from reaching the end of that race. And together, side by side, we finished 13.1 miles, didn't we? We hadn't done it since, <laughs> but uh, we did that race together. Can I just tell you something? 
we got to keep our eyes on what matters. We will face difficulty. We will face trouble. This is the way the writer in Hebrews puts it, Hebrews 12. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And yet how many of us get weary and faint-hearted and we pull back? Because we've made it about us. And we don't consider that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured. We have to endure. We have to keep our eyes on the prize and finish this race. The fourth thing on your card is that they stood up for the truth. They spoke boldly for the Lord. They spoke boldly for the Lord. It says, so they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Can you imagine how scary it must have been in that moment? I don't know about you, but I've been in different countries around the world. And just being in a different country where people are going like this. I'm kind of tall anyway. And so people kind of go, like, what is that guy doing here? Right? I get that all around the world. But can you imagine how scary it is to not only be looked at funny, you're in a foreign place with foreign people, you're giving them a foreign gospel, and now they don't like you. And now they oppose you. And now they want to kill you. But you decide to stand up for the truth. That's what they did. They stood up. They were strong. They had a boldness to speak the truth regardless of what may come, regardless of how it would be received. I just, I just felt the need to remind us that when we get in those situations, we have to remember that the Lord sent us. We're not just going, hey, I think I might go over here and start preaching about you. No. He sent us. And not only has he sent us, he is with us. Right? Romans 9.31 says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Psalm 27.1 says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And Romans 8.35 says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He sent us and he's with us. We have nothing to fear. But you know, sometimes we get in those situations and you go, well, I don't know that I'm going to be very good with apologetics. I don't know that I'm smart enough to have this conversation with that guy or in this situation. You felt that way? I felt that way. And I'm just so thankful that God uses simple things. Simple things like me. Simple people like me. Like you. Like Peter and John before the Sanhedrin, Acts 4.13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. 
and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Look here, three things. Number one, these guys have no business speaking this way. They noticed that. These are common, ordinary, uneducated, untrained men, but there's something incredibly different. Number one, they're so bold. And they're speaking as if they, they have an education. They're speaking as if they have an experience. They're speaking with such confidence and wisdom. And why? Because they've been with Jesus. That's why they're, they're simple, common men. But they've been with Jesus. And Jesus tells his disciples as he's training them for mission in Matthew 10, uh, 19. He says, don't be anxious how you are to speak for what, uh, or what you're to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Friends, we've got to be a bold people. Regardless if we think we got the goods or not, we tell our story of the grace of Jesus over our lives, and we trust that the Spirit of God will speak through our mouths. Can I tell you something? I show up here week after week, and he does it week after week in me. I believe that he does. And I believe he'll do it through you. He'll give you the very words to say. Here's the fifth thing on your card. God was with them. He was with them just as he promised. Uh, our text says he bore witness to the word of his grace. And it says that they were able to do miracles and signs and wonders. Paul and Barnabas are doing these things. And in doing these things, God is confirming that he approves of these men. He approves of this message and that he is present in all of it. That's what he's for, right? And this is not new, by the way. Look at Mark 16, 20. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. This is how God works. Hebrews 2, 4. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. But I want you to notice something. God's not only giving witness. He's not just giving witness to people, did you notice that? You could miss it if you don't look closely. Look what he says. He says he gives witness, he bores witness to the word of his grace. This is what I, I feel like we, we ought to hear in this. God will always be true to his word. In other words, what Paul and Barnabas were doing was consistent with his word. And because their message was consistent with his word, God bore witness, gave them the ability to do these miracles and these signs. God will always be true to his word and he will never contradict it. Church, hear this this morning. He will never contradict it. So if there's, there's some crazy theology in the world right now, right? There's some crazy theology in mainstream Christianity right now. God will not contradict his word. He will not contradict his word. Go back to his word. Know his word. He'll always be true to it and never contradict it. The question I have for us this morning at South City is, if God is with us, if God is showing his, his pleasure, his approval, and his presence in us, what's that going to look like? Well, number one, I believe it's going to be people saved. Can I tell you, in the last two years, we've seen over 100 people saved at South City. That's, that's only by his grace that God has done that. I believe he's going to see people deepen in their relationship with Jesus. And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. But has your relationship with Jesus gone deeper since you've been a part of our church? Just ask your own heart that. I know mine has, like, multitudes. 
But here's the other thing. If God is with us, there's going to be some people that are against us. That's what we see in the missionary journeys. God was with these fellows, but there were some people that were against them. But in fact, Jesus himself was accused of doing Satan's work. This was his rebuttal in Luke 11, 18. He said, you say I'm empowered by Satan, but if Satan is divided and fighting against himself, how can his kingdom survive? This is, this is the thing, listen. If you're facing some obstacles, if you're facing some, some tension, some struggles, and we are as a church, I think we're doing something right, right? Because the enemy won't get in his own way. That's what Jesus was saying. He said, why would Satan fight against himself and divide his kingdom? So if we're facing some difficulty, if we're facing some trouble and some challenges, we got to know that God is at work in us and the opposition is the enemy. He doesn't want this message to go forth. He doesn't want this church to exist. And it will because Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Amen? This is his church. Sixth thing on your card is this. They follow directions. It's very, it's very simple. Now, what would God do with us as a people if we just followed the directions? I mean, really. What could he do in us if we all just followed the, the directions? This is what we see Paul and Barnabas do. Verse 5 says, When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derby, cities of Lyconia, and the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. See, Jesus had told his disciples in the training of mission. Look here, Matthew 10, 23. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. Paul and Barnabas stayed as long as they possibly could. They endured as long as they could so they could straighten out all the subversion, all the deception to make disciples. But when it came down to they found out they were going to be stoned, then they fled to another town. They were following Jesus' direction. And the last verse I love, there they continued to preach the gospel. Right? Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples. That's what they do. That's what they've done. They're following his directions Regardless of persecution or reception, they preach. Whether people are coming to know Christ or whether they're being run out on a rail out of town, they continue to preach from one location to another they preach. Friends, as we close this morning, can I just remind you, you need a partner in mission. If it's your spouse, then the question is, does your marriage have a mission statement to make Jesus known? Because he wants to use it for his glory. If you're single, find a friend. If you're not involved in a city group, please find one. We, we stood up, the leader stood up today. They're all over the city. We would love to encourage you in that way. You need to be on mission, and those groups are on mission. Why do we need a partner? Because they encourage us to be bold. They hold us accountable. They tell us, yeah, we got to go. They pray for us. They fight for us. They stand with us. And when we go, we got to stand for the truth, and it's not always easy. It's often very difficult. But we got to stand up for the things that we know to be true, as we see Paul and Barnabas did. And then listen, when one opportunity closes, we got to be faithful to move to the next and continue to preach the word of God. That's the mission. Like we said last week, that's the purpose of mission. We preach so that people might come to know Jesus. I'm so thankful this morning. I'm so thankful. I can't even tell you how thankful I am that we're on this mission together. We're on this together. 
And God is teaching us and growing us and refining us. And he's going to make us stronger through the fire, through the difficulty. I believe that with all my heart. Let's pray this morning. Father, thank you so much for your kindness, your mercy, your goodness. God, thank you that not only have you sent us on mission, but you go with us everywhere we go. And even when we find ourselves without the words to say, by your grace and your goodness, you will place those in our mouths. Mm, how kind you are. Lord, I pray that you would help every person here just to reflect on what it means to be on mission for Jesus. What it means to tell our story of your grace and mercy in our, in our lives. And we may not have to lay out some three or five point sermon for people. We can just go, can I tell you what Jesus has done for me? Can I just tell you how I'm different? And may we encourage one another not to give up this race, not to look to the side and be discouraged because of someone else's sin or someone else's mistake. Lord, I'm just reminded that the church is full of broken people who are sinful and make mistakes. And very often those people do sinful things that are mistakes. God, may we look to you as our father, as our finisher, Lord, the perfecter, founder of our faith, not to the people who've hurt us. And may we find our place in a family who is on mission to make you known together. God, if there's somebody in this place today that that does not have a home, does not have a family to be on mission with, Lord, draw them here, would you? If that's your will, would you make it clear in their hearts and souls to be on mission with us? We love you so much. What a privilege, God, that we don't have to do this alone. We can go together. We can enter this world together, shoulder to shoulder, friend to friend, holding each other up, fighting this battle together. We are not alone, and you would never want us to be alone. So God, together, may we look at every challenge, every situation, that you give us an opportunity to teach and preach, and be bold. May we do that together on mission for your glory to make your message known to this world. In Jesus' precious name, amen.